0: I'm Helen Avery
1: and I'm Ryan Jude and you're listening to Green is the New Finance with the Green Finance Institute.
0: Today we're going to be speaking with Polly Billington, Director at UK100 about the role of local government in the green recovery and how they can finance their plans and importantly what we as voters need to look for in the upcoming local elections.
2: We're encouraging candidates to pledge that if they're elected, they will ensure their local authority reaches net zero further and faster than the national target, prioritise a green recovery, so if you've got a choice between dirty jobs and clean jobs, go for the clean ones, and then commit to joining with UK 100 and its overall cross-party membership to advocate for the government for those powers and resources to help. So you make the pledge to be part of the campaign to make it easier, because you will therefore be able to do much more.
0: Welcome everyone to another episode. I think we're on our way to 20 now and welcome Ryan. How are you? And um, what on earth is going on with Manchester United? Deserting its local fans I hear.
1: <laughs> the the <laughs> European Super League. Um, <laughs> I have wasted so much time and emotion this week talking and just thinking about this. Um, glad it's just fallen through. Still I'm going to try to do it but football survived and I, I just about survived as well.
0: I have to confess, I've actually entirely missed what I gather has been this really monumental moment for football. Um, Should we be talking more about this?
1: (laughs) Helen, it, it would take me a whole podcast episode. I could rant about it for hours, but perhaps we should get back to, to greed
0: finance. Yes, in, okay, indeed. And um, and I'm really excited to have Polly on to join us today. She is a fellow former journalist um, and has a decade-long career in national and local politics.
1: Yeah, super excited to speak to Polly today. Polly used to work for the BBC as a journalist, um, left to work in politics, and now runs UK 100. Um, she's also a councillor in the London borough of Hackney, so she's very well versed in local policy, local environmental policy and local elections.
0: So UK 100, if you don't know them, they're a network for UK locally elected leaders who have pledged to switch to 100% clean energy by 2050 and are doing everything in their power to get to net zero as soon as possible um, by 2045 at the latest. If you want to find out if your council or borough is on the list or not on that list, you can check out their website, by the way.
1: And it's great timing to have Polly joining us as we have the local elections coming up on the 6th of May. And we'll be discussing them today and UK 100's campaign ahead of the local elections, as well as what councillors and candidates could be doing when it comes to local environmental policy. This is a very important election for local democracy. It's going to be covering 145 English local councils, about 5,000 seats, and 13 directly elected mayors, including the Mayor of London. And the Scottish Parliament, Welsh Parliament and London Assembly elections also fall on that day. So a very busy and super important day. And so we're very excited to have Polly on to talk to us about them and what local councils can do in the fight against climate change. Hi, Polly. Welcome to Green is the New Finance. How are you doing today?
2: I'm good, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: Are you very busy ahead of the May elections?
2: Uh, Well, yes, we always are. We've actually launched a campaign to uh, encourage everybody um, who is thinking about which way to vote to ask their candidates whether they're going to be delivering green jobs, because local authorities have got a lot of potential to be able to make sure that that uh, that recovery is as green as possible. So that's what we're asking for.
1: Perfect. Well, that is why we have you on today. It's one of the main themes to talk all (laughs) about what local authorities can do as we go down this transition to net zero. And of course, all the asks that UK 100 are coming out with. But before we get to that, a little bit of background on you, Polly, and on UK 100. So you established UK 100 in 2016, Mm -hmm. but you've of course been involved in British politics, local and national for a while before that, working for Ed Miliband and Sadiq Khan. So what made you set up UK 100 and what are its main goals?
2: Well, I set up UK 100 because a lot of local authorities around the time of Paris, back in 2015, a lot of local authorities had decided to make this big commitment to shift to 100% clean energy by 2050. Now, that doesn't seem like a big commitment now, but that's an example of how things have changed and how quite how fast they've changed. So that was a big deal. Well, I've been around in politics long enough to know that if you're not careful, a commitment like that can just basically be a press release, right? It manages to make a good, you know, page lead in a big national newspaper, everyone sort of high fives and uh, that's the end of it. Unless somebody is there to make sure that that commitment becomes a reality, which is what I did. So making sure that it was cross party, that you're sharing information, but also that you're bringing those local authorities together, not just to find out how to do things now within the existing rules, but because they are ultimately people who don't just live within the rules, but are elected politicians who like to change the rules to get them to kind of collectively pull their resources and their voices together to ask for change at national level so that they can do more.
1: Mm, I think that's an important part as well that it's what can we do today but also how can we fix it for the future and one that I think is great about UK 100 is that it is cross-party and non-partisan because this should be climate Mm. change is a non-partisan issue and everyone should be working towards it. So you talked about making a change, and one of your main goals for this year, you recently published your plan for 2021, putting local governments at the heart of net zero, and you have your mm-hmm. upcoming Power Shift report, which we will come to shortly. But first, why are local authorities so important in the transition?
2: Well, I think this is really important to understand because I think quite often people think, well, I pay my council tax and the people take my bins away. (laughs) Yes, they probably got responsible for a bit of street lighting and some of them look after schools and some of them look after planning. But really, you know, what have they got to do with climate change? There are so many different levers at local level that local authorities can use to be able to shift our whole communities to um, better climate action that you that national government need to understand that without those t- those levers being used properly, we're not going to get to net zero in time actually, depending on what lo- tier of local authority and in England, which is where a lot of our work is, Local government is probably unnecessarily complex, right? There are loads of different there are loads of different tiers. It's not straightforward, and that's why we wanted to do that bit of analysis to work out where the powers la- lie, and what you can do with those powers. And actually, what we found, and this goes to your your point about the piece of research, is that mo- there is a ca- kind of general principle of competence right, that was established by the Localism Act by Ma- actually Michael Gove uh, soon after uh, um, the, the, the Conservative government got in, which presumes that local authorities sh- should just be able to get on with it. And we've quite often find in national government that they kind of go, well, why didn't they just get on with it? Um, which is all very well until you find that, well, we would get on with it. For example, we would love to put really high sustainability standards into new homes when we build them. Apart from the fact the National Planning Inspector will come along, suck their teeth and say, oh, we see, it's a terrible drag on the market. You're making it really difficult for developers to build new homes. So local authorities are tearing their hair out trying to do the right thing. For And then something national will get in the way. It's not the only example. There's lots of them in our report where you just get to them. You find where the limits are of this power because there's something national that will get in the way. So that's why we say national frameworks need to enable, facilitate, incentivize, drive forward local action. And Why do we think local action is so important? Because we know that local authorities are really close to their communities. They have to work in a cross-party way quite often because they're pretty close to each other. You've got a lot of what they call informally sort of bully pulpit powers, which is bringing people together, convening them, saying this is the way we want our communities to be. So there's lots of different kinds of power involved in politics. Some of it is actual law. Some of it is duties. Some of it is regulations. And some of it is simply having the nerve to say this is how we want our communities to be. And this is what we'd like you to work with us to make that happen. And that's how you bring civil society together, businesses together. And local authorities really should be quite good at that because the people who are elected to run them live and breathe the same, you know, live in the same area and breathe the same air as the people that elect them. I think um, local government is
0: one of the toughest jobs you can have all those it's a myriad of stakeholders. I know from my, my husband's experience in local government, it's not, I, I would not be able to do that job. Um, but Ryan mentioned your power shift report earlier and you just touched on some of the, the challenges local authorities have. And we'll, we'll talk about what government can do in a moment. But um, so we understand the report when it comes out um, second half of April, it's going to detail the barriers and problems Sort of mm. Specifically, facing local authorities when it comes to delivering net zero, could you give us a bit of a preview and share with us some of the specific barriers and issues for local authorities?
2: Well, for one one of them that I've given is the is the one on on building standards. Now, that's going to change slightly with the future home standards, partly because we we and am, amongst others complained that the future home standard was putting a ceiling on ambition rather than a floor. So, what you want is a minimum by which people which people can exceed rather than a maximum which you can't exceed because we want to go further and faster. Therefore, creating a market within which the good developers will do better because they're more likely to get the planning permission, because they've gone further and faster, than people who will go, oh, that's all a bit difficult. Let's just do it like we've always done it. There's quite a lot of centralized approaches to funding and decision making in transport, which makes things difficult so if we had more increased devolution of transport funding and wider powers particularly in those big combined authority areas you know like liverpool city region greater manchester west midlands tyne and weir places like that if you had wider powers there transport powers like they have in london you have the opportunity to be able to coordinate and deliver a transport networks that are much more much more integrated, much less dependency on cars, much less, uh, um, and therefore much less air pollution and much less dependency on fossil fuels, let alone the fact that we need to think about uh, how you would have a seamless EV charging infrastructure, which again needs cooperation and collaboration. But if you build... Uh, EV charging systems around the way that the electricity system works now, rather than for the needs of a community, i.e. can we have these near workplaces, near shopping centres, near residential uh, uh, areas, and indeed near schools? For example, and instead, we'll no, we'll just have them in this car park that hasn't been used for ages because it's miles out of town. Then you get a a problem. So things like that need to be designed in, and that's exactly what local authorities do all the time. They're thinking, how do we regenerate our place? Where are good shopping places? Where do we people want to be able to build it? Where, Where do people want homes? Where do we need schools? And therefore, where do we need power? Oh, sounds like there's going to be some really
0: amazing recommendations um, in this report that comes out. So really, really looking forward to it. Um, did you find anything specifically that the government could do to provide more support for local authorities um, as you're compiling your report?
2: Well, I think there's some, some, the high level things is things like decentralising powers and resources around transport, Um, making sure that those building standards, even if if they are centralised, they need to be more ambitious and they need to have a more long-term plan towards delivering net zero. You guys will know from the work that you've done on uh, uh, the Coalition on Energy Efficiency in Buildings that we're building houses now that we're going to have to retrofit. So a long-term framework that supports local authorities to decarbonise buildings and heat would be pretty essential. And that energy infrastructure that I'm talking about, the way that electricity is managed and delivered, now that actually is the responsibility of Ofgem, the regulator, but the regulator only does what it's told to do by government. And then, of course, there's things around waste collection and disposal where, although they've got lots of duties they haven't got a lot of control about how much is generated in the first place. In fact, again, Michael Gove, when he was at DEFRA, did some quite interesting stuff about waste, about how the polluter should pay. And we're, we're quite interested in, in engaging with DEFRA longer term to understand a bit more about how we can make that work so that it's not local authorities are ending up with a burden of how to deal with the pollution but actually the people who create it, which are ultimately the corporates um, and businesses, without ending up beating up on the smaller businesses who, don't, who have it much more difficult for them to have sustainable strategies.
1: Great. So plenty of things the government can be doing then. Um, but as we mentioned earlier, as detailed in your plan for 2021, your first major action for this year is a campaign ahead of the local elections. For those listening who aren't yet aware of these, firstly, give it a Google and check if you are registered to vote as soon as possible. But Polly, you said that you want to get local candidates to commit to bold climate action as part of their election campaign. So what exactly does this entail and what will your main campaign targets be?
2: Well, I think it is important to understand quite how much of a bumper year this is in elections because of the pandemic. Last year's elections were postponed. So in some parts of the country, people are going to have five different ballot papers. For those of us who are who are sort of slightly obsessed with electoral systems and politics, it's like it's a very exciting year. But on top of that, right? But on top of that, we've got to get our our economy kick-started again because after the pandemic, things are going to be really tough. Local authorities are highly aware of this. If you think about it, they're the ones who are having to make sure that the vulnerable Families get their, their parcels of food when they've been shielding. They know where those families are, their own local care services and so forth have been really stretched. Um, quite a lot of the consequences are picked up by local authorities. So it's really important for them that they're strength economically. So what we've said is that we're encouraging candidates in the local elections, to pledge that if they're elected, they will ensure their local authority reaches net zero further and faster than the national target, 2045 for their whole communities. Prioritise a green recovery. So if you've got a choice between dirty jobs and clean jobs, go for the clean ones. And then also to get those those candidates to commit to joining with UK 100 and its overall cross-party membership to advocate for government for those powers and resources to help. So you make the pledge on the understanding that You don't just then go, oh, we'll do what we can. You make the pledge to be part of the campaign to make it easier because you will therefore be able to do much more. So...
0: I was really interested to see if we can sort of talk about some of the practical examples that you've seen working on the ground um, on the Knowledge Mm -hmm. Hub section of your website, uk100.org, some really great examples of success stories of how city and regional authorities are translating net zero ambitions into concrete action. Um, Are there any you could sort of share with us that you think could be replicated by other councils as we think about these May elections?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of of really good examples and and some of them will be much quicker... Uh, And easier to get done and sometimes more visible. So, therefore, they show your intention and and direction. I keep saying to people, you can spend all of your time making your plan, but basically work out what you need to do first and fast, what's going to take longer and you can do later. So, for example, Salford have got an electric car club. So is Lancaster. But what they've done um, is they've created electric car clubs that are available for officers of the council, right? Because what that does is it means that they're driving around in Salford or Lancaster City Council badged cars saying this is electric. So what that says is the council's already committed to this. And then what they've also done is then said they're available for hire by the public when we're not using them for the council. Wow. Which, do you know what I mean? And then it's yeah. like, oh, so that becomes that's, that actually becomes a sort of public asset. And another one, which is, again, it's a much bigger thing So it might not be visible straight away, and it takes ages to get sorted out, but makes a big difference in terms of carbon reduction. And that's a district heating network. Now, I know that you'll be doing stuff on on heating over time at the GFI because it's a really difficult nut to crack. We've done quite well on energy and power in particular in this country, partly because we've offshored it. We literally offshored it by making offshore wind one of the major generators of electricity in this country. You can't offshore heat and transport. You go from A to B on a map, right? Heat is heating a place. You have to work out how you're going to get the heat there. You can pass electricity around. Yes, it's, it's not straightforward, but it can be passed around. M- moving heat around is much harder. So therefore, you need to make sure that you use heat where, it's, uh, where it is generated as much as possible and connect heat up. Um, as much as possible, so that you can be as efficient with it as possible. Now, what Leeds found is that whichever way they cut it, they couldn't, until recently, work out a way of making, of, of building a district heating network and getting it entirely funded by private money. So eventually, they decided that they were going to get their, they were going to invest their own money. Now, that's a big deal. For a local authority they did secure other money from Europe and from and from national government and it was important part of national government's commitment that they created the heat network delivery unit and the heat network investment so that you can get those those networks going uh, being set up so now in Leeds they've done that and you have to have some big institutions like leisure centers and shopping centers and so forth that can use a lot of it and then create some spurs that connect the heat and hot water up to homes. So now the scheme is providing um, low carbon heat and hot water to nearly 2,000 homes, saving and tenants money on their energy bills and reducing the carbon city footprint. And it's, cur- it's providing local employment and training opportunities because we're going to need different skills. So that project has helped employ more than 430 people in the local low carbon sector, 36 apprenticeships. And it's educating local schools on climate change because the local academy is involved in the in the in the project. So that's quite that's quite a lot of different aspects. And that's what you need to think about it.
1: Quickly before we get to the finance, obviously over the pandemic we've seen a lot of new initiatives coming in. Do you think there's anything that we've seen in the pandemic that local authorities can carry over into the new normal?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, this is this is not necessarily a universally popular position to take, um, but the low-traffic neighbourhoods that local authorities have in- have introduced are making a real difference. Now, I'm saying that, be- I'm saying, oh, it's you know, a bit controversial because there was a lot of noise from actually quite a small number of people that this is massively inconveniencing them. A low-traffic neighbourhood still allows people to keep their car, drive to and from wherever they want to. It will take a little bit longer, and they might have to go around the houses. Why? Because low-traffic neighbourhoods prevent rat running, slow traffic down, keep it out of residential areas, and therefore make places cleaner and healthier and safer for people to live in. Those things, and also I'll tell you what, really obvious stuff. People are always going on about bike lanes. Yes, bike lanes are really important for cyclists. I'll tell you what's really important is somewhere to lock your bike in town. Some of the cheapest stuff is the most effective. You don't necessarily have to put loads of stuff in. Um, you can, and that makes a big difference. We know that segregated bike lanes massively encourage children, older people, more women. And you know what? I think, dare I say it, Ryan. Every time a bloke thinks he's got an opinion about it, it's just worth his while thinking. Do you know what? I'm going to ask the women in my life what they think because you will find a very different experience women will want safe places to walk reliable regular safe and affordable public transport and places where you don't have a super highway for cycles but somewhere that's a quiet way for bikes and those things absolutely transform the way that cities are and that's a re- that's really really important and there is a lot of that that actually if we get that right and combine that with some big strategic changes around those main roads, because those main roads still need cleaning up, people still live on them, and we can't a- allow them to be completely choked. But that's one of the really big things that will make a difference.
0: I
1: think what you said there is one of the key issues with reframing it. It's having the language around not just being about environment, but being about safety, being about reducing air pollution for children that are growing up in the area. And it needs to be repositioned to show that it's not just about restricting cars there's a reason that cars are being restricted
2: yeah and also let's be honest about it the reason why we have got all those rat runs is because of gps then suddenly places that were quiet became busy and they absorbed the three billion more um, car journeys there were in the intervene in the sort of 20 years since gps uh, um, uh, started and we've sort of absorbed that and thought that was fine well actually it's not fine you see the difference when kids are playing out in the street you see the difference um, when, it, you know, you can hear birdsong. And these are things that shouldn't be the, pr- the the privilege or the preserve of a small number of, you know, Grosvenor Square because they've got a garden in the middle. They should be the kind of thing that everyone should be able to have. And that's what low traffic neighbours should be able to establish.
0: So I just wondered now if we could switch to the role of finance in helping local authorities fulfill their plans. Are there any um, examples that you can give or any tools you've seen working um, where local authorities um, have been able to uh, attract private capital? You mentioned sort of the challenge of leads earlier, but is there anything that is working that you could sort of share?
2: well the the heat network delivery unit and the heat network investment program are good examples of how eventually that kind of thing can get off the ground because local authorities will have lots of ambition ideas and enthusiasm but they don't necessarily have the in-house competence if they have got properties and they may, might only be dealing with it in terms of procuring you know energy and uh, um for um for a few buildings so Recognising that they don't necessarily have that kind of expertise, the government decided to set up the delivery unit and um, offer support and uh, patient capital to be able to develop heat networks. So that's a a good example of of, uh, where things have happened. But when we're talking about getting finance together for local authorities, the key thing is to put together a range of of, um, pots of money and pull it together into a business case where you can make the things work that are actually quite cheap and quite easy along with some of the more complicated and more difficult and therefore more com- more expensive ones um, where therefore you can be absolutely transformative. If you are doing, for example, heat network with new build, um, then you, obviously you're thinking, what are we going to have public transport for this for these new build? What kind of uh, facilities are we going to create for Um, people to get to and from their houses are we going to give them EV charging are we going to give them bike stores where does the network go how do we combine that that's going to be quite tricky we're going to need to talk to the distribution network operators there comes a whole load of things like that which make it immediately expensive right which means that a local authority can have a really great ambition that they're going to have a garden suburb and it's going to be EV friendly and it's going to have electric bikes and it's going to have this that and the other and the bankers will say well how much money do you need lots um a be more specific and B, your idea of lots and our idea of lots is probably very different uh you're used to getting grants or free money Uh, we don't do free money and so you've got a dialogue of the deaf in between you've got directors of finance who say why on earth should i go to private finance which is going to be more expensive when i can get cheap finance and do things how we've already done them LED lighting, for example, pays for itself within a couple of years. But for a long time, and even, and sometimes even now, local authorities use Salix financing to get that, which is free money. Now, in my view, you shouldn't be wasting free money on something that will pay back within two years. Mm. So where where is the incentive for a director of finance to give the go-ahead for somebody to build a business case for things to be different from how they've already been. That's fundamentally the big challenge. And that's where we think the National Infrastructure Bank can make a real difference because it can bridge that gap. So we're very keen to talk to the Treasury about what that advisory capacity might be, and what kind of money will be available for local authorities in particular. So they're not just saying, oh, we want another grant for another feasibility study. But instead, we want to transform our, tra- our transport system. We know that that's a, that's you know, could be billions of quid. We haven't got billions of quid. What do we need to spend the money on in order to be able to make this an investable project for, pri- for private um, finance? And the key thing about that, and this is what I'm going to keep saying about the bank, is that I'm really pleased we've got an infrastructure bank. I'm really pleased we've got a mandate for net zero. I'm really pleased they're going to include advice for local authorities. Please, 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 please make sure that the capital is development capital because that enables the bank to crowd in private finance rather than crowd it out. We need somebody who can do the difficult bit because what we're talking about is changing the market, changing our economy quite fundamentally. And that doesn't happen without human beings making collective decisions about what we want that market and that economy to be like. And that's what government is for and a National Infrastructure Bank should be for. And we think those high-level asks are not that, they're big, but they're not unreasonable, especially when they're put in the context of what the national government have already committed themselves to.
1: Yeah, no, 100%. The way you frame that there is really getting to the crux of the issue, that it's about educating both sides and sharing knowledge so they can meet in the middle and find the ways to actually develop these innovative financial ways to build these various infrastructure projects that do also make a return after a while can pay themselves off which i think is where we see a lot of local councils not quite having that capacity yet which is what we're both obviously hoping to help help fix in the next in the next few years um look you touched on the infrastructure bank there um obviously we live and breathe this stuff we talk about the bank every single day um if a local authority or a finance officer is listening what should they be looking at the infrastructure bank to help them with in the future
2: well, I think we're we're engaging with the Treasury to support them to understand what local authorities want. Fundamentally, local authorities need advice on how to build a business case, and to either access development and patient capital from the from the bank itself, or from somewhere else. We're very clear that we're not expecting this to be money for nothing. Right, you've got to have no proven commitment, competence, ambition brought your partners together, recognise that this is not something that you can do on your own. You know, who are your other big employers in the area? Who are the other big players in your community? Bring your private sector together, bring your voluntary sector together, your civil society, bring your other public um, bodies together and work with them to then say, this isn't just a project for like 30 houses. It's not even a, just a project for like 300 houses. This is a program of transformation for our community where we might start like that one in Leeds with 2,000 council homes but this it's a place to start and what will happen next? Will you build spurs to new homes? will you fit, will you create opportunities for retrofit of existing homes? What will that mean? for what else happens in those in those areas what will be the visible benefits that the rest of the society and the community will see even if they're not getting their homes retrofitted so think about those kind of things and that's when you do that whole place transformation so are we are we building in the other things that we need green lungs biodiversity and how are we building our streets so that they are people friendly rather than vehicle friendly I think that we want we want to be able to help local authorities shape what the bank offers them um, and make sure that the bank's capacity is complementary to what local authorities can do. And also, crucially, from our experience, is that if they find that regulatory or lo- legislative or policy frameworks are making things more expensive, especially for the private sector, that's where we need to make sure there's a positive feedback loop into government so that government can change the rules if necessary.
1: So we've talked about some great national level financing options there, the Infrastructure Bank, the Heat Network Delivery Unit, and also, of course, going to banks. But on a more local level, are there any innovative green finance products that you've seen local councils using in recent years, which you think all the councils could copy?
2: Yes, I have, actually. I mean, what's been very interesting is um, what's happened in Warrington, where um, the local authority has basically bought its own solar farm. And this goes to the point about I was saying about the finance directors, is that if a finance director can see that something will wash its own face, then they'll be up for it. And you have a very, very sensible accountant in Warrington saying, we did this because it made money. And that way, you get to community municipal investments where you can actually get a particular return on your money, which is good, and it's invested locally. And it definitely keeps your, your local public involved and engaged. That's the kind of thing we want to be able to encourage people to do locally. But we must also be aware that whether it works at the scale that is needed, bearing in mind what the science requires. That's why, yes, we encourage people to do it, but mostly in order to be able to learn from it, to work out how we do these these things bigger and better.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important that it's part of the funding stack that you mentioned earlier. It's one component of of many. And just to plug one of our own episodes, if you're interested in learning more about community municipal investments, we did a great episode with Louise Wilson from Abundance a couple of months ago, which explains their work in a little more detail.
2: Oh, they'll be much more authoritative about it than I am.
1: (laughs) They'll be very happy to hear you plugging it.
2: Good. Fantastic. Thank you
0: so much, Polly. Before we let you go today, we want to sort of ask you for advice on what we can all do um, across the various sort of sectors that we all represent. So, firstly, you know, what can people do to get involved? uh, What those listening can do, get involved with promoting these green policies in their local elections and making sure that those elected are doing what we need them to do for net zero.
2: Well, like I say, uh, we're asking everybody to ask their candidates are they supporting good green jobs? and to vote for the for the candidates who support good green jobs to ask their candidates are they committing to net zero ahead of the national um, legislative legislative target to therefore demonstrate ambition and to ask their candidates to join with us to ask for the rules to be changed so that net zero is easier fairer and faster
1: so that's it from the constituents perspective now, seeing as this is all around the upcoming election, if there is a budding councillor candidate out there, or even a seasoned councillor um, that's listening to this, what would be the top three things you'd tell them to do tomorrow to make sure that their campaign is green ahead of May?
2: Well, i tell you what, I mean, this is me being a seasoned campaigner. It's like, I wouldn't be telling them to do anything in the middle of April, because they'll have already written uh, all their leaflets <laughs> back in January, right? But I am assuming that these people will have already thought about this, right? So because this has been going on for some time, I'm looking for candidates, uh, you know, um, ambitious candidates who want to be able to get on and do stuff, need to be thinking that they are, they need to understand what the opportunity is for green recovery in their community. They need to be finding their allies and partners across the private and the voluntary sectors as well as the public sector, and be bringing them together as soon as they get elected and say, right, how are we going to do this? But then, if they haven't already signed up to a net zero commitment with us, they should do, because what they get been connected into a network of like-minded elected representatives who want to get to net zero further faster and fairer and therefore they can work out how they can do that now as well as having a stronger voice to advocate for national government change.
1: Okay so a very clear set of recommendations there for anyone who's listening and wants to follow up on them. Um, Polly before we let you go we've been asking everyone in this crucial crucial year for climate action with COP26 coming up in November What's the one big hope that you and UK 100 want to see coming out of the summit?
2: I think out of the summit, the biggest thing actually is, is about finance. You know, I've been campaigning on a lot of things for a long time. And how organisations and elected representatives spend money is basically makes a difference between whether something works or something doesn't. So where does that money go? And does that money go to be able to tackle climate in a way that is fair to people, who are otherwise going to be utterly screwed over by the consequences? Now, for a long time, those people were on, were sort of seen as on the other side of the world, and only a few people in this country had, you know, direct connections to them. Now, that's not the case. You know, you have a flood in Bangladesh, and it can kill thousands. You, can, you have a flood in Cumbria, it doesn't kill thousands, but it devastates the lives of thousands for some time to come because our infrastructure is not up to it. Now, we need to make our, resilient, our infrastructure resilient. We need to make sure that people do not die in thousands in floods in Bangladesh. And we also need to make sure that we are not exposing our economy to those kinds of risks simply because we think that we can survive them because we have done before, because this kind of threat is one we haven't experienced before. And we are actually so well placed to do really well out of this and so well placed to actually pay back for people who have over decades and centuries um, been the ones who have lived, who, who, have, who have been exploited um, and have not benefited from the kind of things that we have uh, here in the UK. So it's got to be finance and it's got to be fair and it's got to be fast. Love it
0: finance fair and fast and I think those are all sort of the tenets that we hold ourselves to here as well at the Green Finance Institute so it's been such a pleasure having you on Polly thank you and really good luck with the campaign I hope thank you I hope it's amazing turnout and we we get the the people elected that
2: we we need well look out for our summit in July because in July we're hoping to bring our our leaders together with national government to be able to say to national government this is what we think we can do if you change these rules. And that deal will be a really important precursor to what happens at COP. Brilliant.
0: Well, our full support behind it. We'll make sure we promote it as it gets nearer to the time. And also, um, don't forget to look for the report that's coming out in the um, second half of April that we talked about. the earlier. End of April, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks
2: again. Lovely to speak to you.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Polly. Cheers. So lots to digest there then. Plenty of practical solutions that can be implemented in local areas and lots of actions for councillors and for those who will be voting in a couple of weeks. Helen, what did you think?
0: Yeah, another really informative interview. Um, Totally opened my eyes actually to the, the really important role of local government in this green recovery.
1: I just think people in general need to acknowledge the importance of local councils and how important a role they have in helping the country achieve net zero. I don't think it can be understated really and Polly definitely did not understate it then. And and in these upcoming local elections and those happening next year, we need people that really understand what needs to be done to combat climate change. We always talk about 2030 being this target where we need actions we've been achieved by. And therefore these next sets of elections will shape the action we're going to see.
0: Yeah. What I also really took away um, from listening to Polly was this sense that system change, you know, which we all talk about all the time, is really just made up of many, many stakeholders, often at a local or micro level, just each pushing for change, understanding the barriers, looking for solutions, um, and that groups that bring those stakeholders together like UK100 sort of build confidence for them to share learning, speak with one voice are such an important part of that process. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, collaboration is obviously so important and hopefully we get a lot of candidates that sign up to UK100's ideas and hopefully people go out and vote for those candidates.
0: Yes, May the 6th, big date. But I'll be back before then on a different topic that may seem irrelevant to the UK and that is heat resilience. It's a huge topic globally but also for us here at home and I'll be joined by Kathy Baumer-McLeod, Director of the Adrian Asht Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Centre at the Atlantic Council to talk about heat and financing for resilience more broadly.
1: And while Helen records that episode, I will be busy still protesting the European Super League, the (laughs) Glazer family's presence at Man United, and corruption in football. (laughs) So until then, you've been listening to Green is the New Finance.
0: Green is the New Finance is brought to you by the Green Finance Institute, with audio production by Fairly Media.